Some of you may remember that song by the band R.E.M. came out in 1987, The End of the World as We Know It. I love this little end of the second verse. Save yourself, serve yourself. World serves its own needs. Listen to your heart bleed. Tell me with the rapture and the reverend and the right, right? You vitriolic, patriotic, slam fight, bright light, feeling pretty psyched. And then the chorus, it is the end of the world as we know it. Repeated three times, and how does it end? And I feel fine. So, with slightly less time than normal today to preach God's word, because we've already had a visual sermon through baptism, I plan on answering all of your burning questions about the end times. (laughs) All of them. No. And we are coming now to Mark chapter 13. As you heard in the text, Jesus has left the temple. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. He has, he has said that what's going on in the temple is not right and just before God. There have been debates and inquisitions, interpretations and answers, and now he is sitting on the other side of the Kidron Valley. If you've ever been there or seen pictures up the Mount of Olives, teaching his disciples. This chapter 13, which we will dive into even more deeply next week, is often referred to in the scholarship as the Little Apocalypse or the Olivet Discourse. But it is a series of merciful but necessary divine judgments against sin and idolatry and divine promises for the people of God that they might be restored when Messiah comes. So, you know, I do this too, but you let your Bible flip open the Santa Fe spring breeze in the morning, you know, what should I read? You hit like Jeremiah 15, you have no idea what's going on. You know, don't just pick out one verse and say, it's about me. No, it's not, okay? But what you can know when you come to the prophets is that the prophets are, are often arranged in cycles of judgment and restoration. Judgment and restoration. Discipline and then bringing God's people back to Himself. That's always the point when God is speaking to his people, to, to discipline them in love, but also to bring them back into right relationship with him. We have a mini version of that, a mini Isaiah, a mini Jeremiah, right here in Mark chapter 13. It's broken down into three major sections. The first pertains mostly to the temple, the second persecution, and the next week we'll dive more deeply into the coming of the Son of Man, which we can expect when we see the abomination in the place of desolation. Now, you should know that much damage, much damage has been done to the people of God and the church of God through texts like these. There are historically at least three major interpretations from faithful scholars, and you may not have heard this before, and so I want to emphasize it. One interpretation is that basically everything Jesus is saying is in general fulfilled within the first generation of those early disciples leading up to the destruction of the temple, Herod's temple, in 70 AD. That indeed, most of it, if not all of it, is fulfilled in that time frame. Now, there's another school, wrong, that would take this text as being primarily or entirely into the future. Not something that happened before the destruction of the temple, but all looking toward this cataclysmic, Revelation end times event. And then what I think is probably the right interpretation of this text is that it is a now and a not yet uh, sort of a situation. It is a mix of both. Much of this was indeed fulfilled in that generation. 
And the earliest readers of this text would have assumed that the things happening to them leading up to the destruction of the temple were right in line with, indeed fulfilling, this prophetic, predictive text. But there are clearly some things, especially next week, that we'll get to, so come back next week, that seem to be not merely looking to 70 AD, but perhaps to the second coming of the Christ. R.C. Sproul said, this is a most beautiful and complex text. Now, I read several commentaries and listened to several sermons this week about this text, and every one of them said, beware. Beware and be humble. This is not an easy text to interpret. And beware of anyone who comes around and says, it is. Here in this text, we get a list of prophetic warnings, but we also get something really beautiful where Jesus says to his disciples, hard times are going to come, but you don't need to be anxious. Man, how many people in this room, I'll be the first to raise my hand, struggle with anxiety from time to time? Don't raise your hands. But I mean, you can if you want to, shoot. I mean, I, I do. We all do. And then you make the mistake of, you know, looking at the news or whatever. Jesus says, I mean, challenges await you, but you don't need to be anxious. So there's not just prophetic warning in here. There's gospel rest. How? Because the big point of Mark 13 is not for you to get out your decoder ring and your numerology scrolls and figure out the exact day and the hour. The big point of Mark 13 and John's revelation and all the prophetic texts in the New Testament is that Jesus is the Christ and he knows the end from the beginning. Indeed, he knows your end from your beginning. And if that is true, then Passion Week, again, we're we're still Tuesday here of Passion Week, leading up to the cross, is really about the, the end of man's striving and religiosity. The king has come to do it all. And it's about the beginning of resurrection, even as hard times await. So this morning, we're going to look at four be-nots. Be-nots. Four be-nots. Be not deceived. Be not surprised. Be not afraid. Be not removed. Four be-nots that I think we see in this text as we try humbly and carefully to navigate the tumultuous waters of Mark chapter 13 and its corollaries in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. So first of all, be not deceived. Jesus in verse 9 tells his disciples, you need to be on guard. He is warning his disciples about events that are going to happen to them and to many disciples for years to come after his death, resurrection, and ascension. Be not deceived. And the first place we need to be careful is be not deceived about false understandings of this text. Again, we need to be really careful here, folks. I think there's a reason in verse 3 that Jesus has this as a private conversation with four of his closest disciples as he takes a seat as a teacher with authority on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And they're just like us, aren't they? Tell us. I mean, you just said this crazy thing, Jesus. It is a crazy thing. Some of y'all do not have a crazy enough version of Jesus. You have tamed him. You have domesticated him. You have made him like your little cockapoo. All right? You put him in a dog stroller and walk him to the park because you live in Santa Fe. All right? No hate. But you need to have a little bit of a, a crazier version of Jesus. When he looks at the temple, Herod's temple, 
in its magisterial glory in the ancient world and says, oh yeah, this whole thing will be torn, torn down to the ground. It's just so matter of fact. So they're like us, tell us, when is that going to happen and what signs should we expect that it's happening? Here we get in Mark with Mark's incessant question asking and question begging of the reader, sort of our first implicit question, will we be those who only trust what we can see or will we trust the words of the living God? Because so many people have been abused, spiritually abused. It's in like the psychological dictionary of stuff. Spiritually abused by, by wrong and, and just horrible views of the end times. So many people get messed up on this stuff. Now how? It's not merely through false understandings, but Jesus tells us it's through false teachers. See that no one leads you astray. So right out of the gate, we're supposed to be like the Bereans. Remember, Paul goes to Berea. He preaches the gospel. The gospel is going out, as it were, to the ends of the earth, because that would have been everybody in the Roman Empire at the time. And the Bereans are like, okay, Paul, this is great. This makes sense. The Spirit's at work. The Spirit is working through the Word, helping us understand. But we're going to double-check God's Word. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Indeed, he says, many will come. Now, this isn't some ambiguous many. It's many who are claiming to be the Messiah. And according to Josephus, who was an ancient Jewish historian, whose works are well worth reading, there was a long list after Jesus died and rose again. A long list of those who came around and claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. So Jesus is saying, beware. Because they're all going to come with a slightly different version of the kingdom I've been teaching you about. I'm teaching you about power made perfect in weakness, cross and resurrection. And you're going to get a lot of swords and saber rattling and Jewish brave hearts and the temple and the stuff. And, and just be careful. Now, how do these many try to leverage this false understanding? Well, it's through false gospels. And there is nothing new under the sun here, folks. Legalism licentiousness, the prosperity gospel, right? If you really want to be loved by God, keep the rules better. We know that's wrong, and yet we have that, so many of us have that regularly in our lives as a functional savior. Because when you screw up, rather than knowing you can run right back into the Father's arms because Christ has died for every sin, you're like me, and you're like, nah, I got to punish myself a little bit first. I messed up, and before I go back to God, I got to do a little mini penitente thing, and then I'll be okay. Legalism. Licentiousness, this is all over the New Testament letters. Look at the Corinthians. I mean, they are a total dumpster fire. You got people sleeping with everybody. You got people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. You got the rich people crushing the poor people at the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, in our day, one version of this is the prosperity gospel. You know, if you really love God, if you really believe, you'll have a great and easy life. <laughs> the most mature Christians that I know in this room who are far more mature in Jesus than I am. And I look up to you, you older saints, you vintage saints. Thank you for loving Jesus so that people my age go, yes, God will be faithful to you your whole life. The ones that I know in this room, they have not just had an uninterrupted series of easy, fun events in their life. So we have to be careful of these false teachers. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that false teachers will come around. 2 Timothy 4 and they will look for people who have itching ears. They will look for people who want their ears tickled, who just want to be entertained, who just want a nice little TED Talk that ends with a Hallmark card. 
They don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about conviction. We don't want to talk about God's justice. We just want to feel good. And by the way, feeling good isn't bad, but the, the way that you get to the good news is you have to be honest in your own life about the bad news. And what's interesting is that these false teachers, they always gain traction by preying upon our, our, our most familiar idols. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you that you can have control in your own life. You can have comfort. You can be the king and commander of your own, you know, of your own deal. And I just think we have to beware. I remember when I was in high school, I went to a conference at a church about end times prophecy. And just beware, confident pastors who bring you to a prophecy conference and then pass the coffer around. Beware of Channel 23, okay? Beware. Because this guy got up and he had a whole thing about, oh, I can tell you what it means, and I ran this, and bleep, blah, blue, and helicopters, and guess what? That was like 30 years ago, and it never happened. Well, we should go Old Testament on that individual then, right? Bring him here, get some stones, and let's take care of business. In the Old Testament, if you got up with confidence in your big oversized, you know, preacher blazer after you had just hit the gluttony buffet and stood there and told everybody you understood that it was going to be Iran and you were wrong, there were consequences for that. So we need to be careful. Not just of them, though. We need to be careful of ourselves. So again, the humility here for all of us, right? We're not going to debate your end times position today. But whatever it might be, let it be biblical. Let it be what brings maximum glory to Jesus. And let it be the sort of thing where you admit, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I don't know. When they asked Jesus Christ himself, when is it going to happen? In Matthew 24, what did he say? Nobody knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son of Man, but only God in heaven. Not the angels. Not me, only the Lord. So we just, we need to be careful here. We, we, need to, we need to be careful or, you know, we might be too easily distracted by what's going to happen in the future and, and too quick to turn away from what God has given you to do right now. What God has given you to do right now is to, to till the soil and to bring the good news to Santa Fe and to, to buy homes, and to marry, and to have children, and grandchildren, and to start businesses, and to bless this city, to go about the work of gardening, to be a new garden, and a new temple here in this city, a temple not made of stones, but a temple made of living souls, the people in this room, and we need to be careful to not be led astray, to not be distracted. So be not deceived. Secondly, be not surprised. Things are going to be Different and difficult in the new rule and reign of God's Messiah. It would have been so normal for this Jewish disciple of Jesus to look at the temple and go, look at these wonderful walls. Look at these wonderful stones. So we should by no means caricature or straw man this person. Like, oh, what an idiot looking at the temple when Jesus is right there. We know a lot of things because we have the Bible now. No, it would have been completely normal. The, the temple was glorious. Uh, you know, Herod, who built the temple, was, was known for this Herodian stonework. A single stone of the temple could be 60 foot by 11 foot by 8 foot. Insane. Just Google it. I, I mean, it's just, how did these people even move these stones, right? Aliens? I don't know. A lot of people, ropes, rolling logs. 
Just incredible, the, the glory and the transcendence and the grandeur of the, the temple. One stone could weigh up to one million pounds. And one ancient writer put it this way, that the temple of Herod, the temple of God that Herod built in Jerusalem, looked like a veritable mountain of marble and gold. It was two times the size of Solomon's temple. So it's not weird for this guy. It's not weird for this guy to go, Jesus, look at this amazing stuff here. And yet there's a, a warning in the way that Jesus responds. And the warning for us is that it's true. We, we love to glory in the things we make. I mean, the, the mantra, right, of our, our day and age is bigger, better, faster, more. I can't remember. One of you guys told me this quote, so I'm just stealing it from someone in this room without giving you any credit for it. But, you know, the, some guy, Rockefeller or Carnegie, one of these guys, someone asked him, like, how much money is enough? It was you, wasn't it, John? How much money is enough? I'm getting the guy's name wrong. Who cares? Here's the point. How much money is enough? And he goes, oh, yeah, always a little more. Always a little more. Bigger, better, faster, more. My place, my people, my country, power. Yes, we need to be careful of all of that. And a distorted, idolatrous view of all of that. But this is just a guy, a disciple of Jesus, who, who genuinely doesn't get it. The temple is in the heart of Jewish culture and faith. The temple is the place where God has promised to be present. And they come and make these sacrifices to atone for sin and God meets with them there as they do what the Lord himself has told them to do. I mean, he's looking at the temple. He's going, yay, God, this is amazing. Look what the Lord is doing. Look at this temple. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's near and dear to us. It represents God's nearness and faithfulness to us. And so to predict its downfall would have been unimaginable. And yet, and yet this is still a short-sighted, myopic, ultimately small-minded view of what God had planned for the whole world. Yes, the temple was beautiful, marble and gold. Yes, it was an incredible structure in the ancient world. And yes, God did use the temple as a place to meet with his people. But God's plan was always bigger than a physical brick-and-mortar temple. It was always for a temple of living stones who could then go and re-temple and re-garden the whole earth who could be called Christians, little Christs, who had the living God, Jesus Christ, in them by grace alone, through faith alone, and they could go out and start churches and be little temples and bring light to the nations. Not just one geopolitical ethnic nation, all nations in the whole world forever. This temple, as we heard last week, had become a pretty frustrating place. Widows were being eaten alive, not literally, but they were being preyed upon for the sake of money. Religion was in full swing, fancy hats, long robes, pomp, circumstance, something that we see a lot of in our own day among Christian preachers too, lest we get cocky. But again, the point of Jesus, as it were, judging the old way and the old system because of Israel's idolatry, it wasn't to judge it to give God's people less, it was to judge it to give them so much more. You know, rather than the priests doing sacrifices in the temple, there would be one final and forever sacrifice. The blood of the pure and spotless lamb would be slain. We're, we're about to partake on those promises at this table. You know, instead of there being one place geographically that you had to get to, to worship and be in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit would democratize his power and his omnipresence into the soul of every 
believer so that wherever God's people go, the temple realities of God are present. It wasn't for scarcity or less. It was to blow the minds of the whole world at what God could do through the finished and final work of Jesus, his son. So the question for us then when we face persecution, which we do, and a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world right now face real persecution. The question is, well, what did we expect? And I'll be honest with you, being that I had two very smart, hardworking parents and had like a pretty darn good life my whole life, and I'm an only child, so I'm the older son, the younger son, the middle son, I'm everything. <laughs> you know, I kind of expected life to be, you know, pretty good and easy for the most part. What did you expect? Well, I mean, let me be honest. Ooh, let me be like really honest. E even some of the reasons, I know, I know even some of the reasons that I started to hang out with Christians and get involved in ministry early on was because like, oh, this felt good. I could stand in front of people and do a little speech, and then all of a sudden people kind of like me. And maybe there's some safety there and some self-protection there, and maybe that deals with some of my insecurities. And that's why Jesus gives us the parable of the soils, because that's maybe not a bad way to come, but, but be careful that what gets you there isn't necessarily what keeps you there. What, what keeps you there is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to you in the valleys as well as the mountaintops. So there will be persecution. Second Timothy, Paul says, Paul's last letter, he's old, he's wise, he loves Jesus more than ever, he's not quite as feisty. And he says to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And brothers and sisters, we know this. We are called to love our city and love our world. The people out there who are not yet believers, they're not like our enemies, Right? Like, ooh, us and them, high walls, culture war. No, go to these people and love them deeply in the name of Jesus. The more different they are than you, the more radically and scandalously I charge you to love them. And yet we should not be surprised when you say, yeah, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And people go, ooh, that's a step too far. I like grace. I like faith and mercy. I like these words. I like nice things. I like that you love people and you care about the city, but whoa, wait, Jesus? Like a Jewish carpenter guy that lived 2,000 years ago? That's the only way to be reconciled to the Father through the Son by the Spirit? And just so you know that there's nothing new under the sun, a Roman historian wrote these words in the time of Nero. Christians. Oh, those Christians. As we all know, and it is common knowledge around the empire, they are not only notoriously depraved, but they hold to what we deem to be a deadly superstition. Ooh. What did we expect? The gospel disrupts the kingdoms and the powers of man. The gospel is the most disruptive force in the world. That's why when Paul goes into Ephesus, Right? You got the, the coppersmith guy and the, these guys that are making the little idols of Artemis and all of a sudden there's a riot in the city. They're trying to kill Paul. This little Jewish dude that nobody even, because he comes in and says, you don't need the idols, you just need Jesus. And all of a sudden you're poking at their pocketbooks and people got upset. The gospel is disruptive to our own self-righteousness, our own meritoriousness. It will comfort you when you are afflicted, but it will afflict you where you are to comfortable. 
The gospel disrupts us because that is why God had to send his only son. Because we can't earn it. We can't get into his good graces by stacking up enough good works. He had to send his son to do the forever and final work to bring us to himself. That we might be delivered. And even as the text says, persevere till the end. Now guess what? We're halfway through the sermon. (laughs) This is the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's pray. Father, uh, I just want to thank you for half a sermon today because we got an amazing sermon at the baptism. And we'll come back to this next week, Lord, as we, as we do more, as we dive humbly. <laughs> oh, Lord, keep us humble as we dive into this beautiful text, Mark 13, judgment for sin, but restoration for those who believe. And we just come, Lord, as those to this table, we come saying, it's us. It's us. We, in our hearts, in our hearts, we are so often the same. We want bigger, better, faster, more. We want to understand. We want the decoder ring. We want to be our own gods. We love comfort and safety. We want to be in control. So we know that the system was broken in those days, and we see the broken system in our own lives, and we come and just say, Jesus, help. And so thank you that the heart of this text The big message, the good news, is that Jesus, you know our beginning and our end. You know what we did last week, you know what we did last summer, and you even know about last night. And scandalously, you say, if you will come to me and trust me, I will forgive you of all sin, every sin, past, present, and future, and I will give you a new name, as our brother John said, not just access into my house, you know, come into my house and clean it and sweep and you know, if I see that you're a good boy and a good girl for long enough, I'll, you know, I'll give you a Christmas present. Not just access to the house, but adoption as sons and daughters through the finished work of Jesus. Jesus, you superseded all the old systems so that you could give us something so much better and send us out with grace and hope, hope in an anxious world to be for the life of the world because your life is for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.